0: This is the Annex of Sociology Podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today, we're talking about the sociology of professional wrestling. My panelists are Patrick Riley from the University of California, Irvine, Tim Gill from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and Tyson Smith from Penn. Our discussion was recorded on March 24th, 2020. All right, so for those of us who don't know much about wrestling or haven't heard much about wrestling from the days of Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, just to get us up to speed, pro wrestling is a massive industry. So World Wrestling Entertainment, the biggest professional wrestling enterprise, does almost a billion dollars a year in revenue, and it's only the most visible part of a much larger market. With a lot of smaller competitors operating, and it, it's a really interesting—you know—it's part entertainment enterprise. You know, there's—it's uh, kind of like a sport in a way. It has a—you uh, know—it has a strong influence over other combat sports like mixed martial arts uh, and boxing. There's just so much there, and it's just something really interesting sociologically to get into. So. We have on three terrific guests to discuss this, and I want to introduce you one at a time. All of you have a link to the wrestling world, and I'll start off with... Pat Raleigh from the University of California, Irvine. Pat, do you want to introduce yourself quickly and tell us about your background?
1: Yeah. Um, so just to, I guess, I, I grew up as a fan. Uh, I remember the first wrestling match I saw was in, I believe, 1991. It was, um, uh, what was it? It was the Steiner Brothers versus Masahiro Chono and Hiroshi Hase. So... You know, there's my bona fides, but uh, no, uh, I, um, I'm somebody that studies media, so- sociology, production, culture, media, sociology to a degree. And it's actually very interesting as a case because professional wrestling is very integral to the development of television and cable television as a medium and also a lot of uh, the negotiations surrounding sports rights content. WWE and other organizations like uh, all elite wrestling which is a new one are really kind of important in the kind of dynamic of you know negotiating rights fees for uh, for television content live television content and um, also I uh, as a side sort of thing that came out of my research on standup comedy uh, stand-up comedy which a lot of there's kind of an overlap of those two worlds uh, I have done announcing for uh, independent professional wrestling uh, in Southern California. So it's, um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting and I was looking forward to having Tyson on because uh, I found his work very resonant, both as a person who is a fan, a person who has participated in some of the same uh, domains that he studied, you know, independent professional wrestling. And also it's like a amazing sort of, environment if you're really into as, as i am you know interactional sociology i mean that's just like the perfect area to see like golf and golf dynamics at work so yeah so I'm, I'm really excited about this episode
0: all right number two on our panel Timothy Gill. You've uh, heard him a few times on our program. He is an expert in Venezuelan politics, international political economy at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And I did not know that you also have some uh, wrestling pedigree yourself, Tim.
2: Yes. I um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and my dad was a, uh, he was a local wrestling coach, The not professional wrestling, but the sport, you know, he wrestled in high school. And so, Um, I started wrestling when I was five and I wrestled for like 11 years and kind of got burnt out and changing interests as I got into high school and started playing music. And yeah, just uh, uh, became a little bit more countercultural, if you will. I came back actually in uh, graduate school at University of Georgia and, uh, just started rolling around with, with the club team. You know, I knew a couple of people that were involved, you know, there were some graduate students, law students. And, um, I actually wrestled one year in graduate school at, uh, age 29, 30, and, uh, I won one match and lost <laughs> all the Congrats. other, but it was just <laughs> something to get back in shape. And, um, just sort of practice and turned into competing in a couple of tournaments in, uh, Tallahassee and Orlando and a couple other places, but, uh,
1: Tim, uh, not to interrupt, but based sure. on your win loss record, does that qualify you as a jobber in your own eyes?
2: Yeah, <laughs> but I did. I am definitely, I was definitely a jobber, you know, um, but, uh, not growing up. I had a promising career growing up but um yeah i guess i just got burnt out but um yeah so pro wrestling was also a fan growing up had all the uh, ljn rubber figures uh, hasbro figures i still collect to this day i probably have somewhere between a thousand two thousand figures um you know this was something that my friends and i we would get pay-per-views and uh, my best friend actually growing up and his brother became professional wrestlers and so um uh, he was in NXT, which is is sort of the training grounds for WWE, and then his brother is in NXT, or I'm sorry, in WWE, Dolph Ziggler, and so his brother Ryan, we played in punk bands, and we're still friends into the present. And there was actually a guy on my wrestling team in high school who's also in wwe right now he's he's eric one half of the viking raiders he's like a a sort of uh scandinavian viking with a big beard that comes out and so um yeah uh cleveland's had a thriving wrestling scene and for there's other people that are there the miz johnny gargano so um somehow coincidentally I have a couple ties to that world and wrestled, and just had long been a fan. Um, my wife and I watch it, you know, wrestling a couple times a week, and uh, I try not to tweet about it too much because, as you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect between Venezuelan politics, political economy, and then professional wrestling. I'm not sure what people think when it's they on brand, yeah. But you know,
0: whatever, I, I can't hold back who I am, so I'll stop there. All right. And one of the best parts about having a podcast is whenever you're interested in a topic, you have a pretext for reaching out to, like, the top experts in the discipline. And in professional wrestling, our Tyson Smith is definitely that. Tyson is a researcher at Penn, and you're working with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs? Yes. And he wrote... Fighting for Recognition, Identity, Masculinity, and the Act of Violence in Professional Wrestling with Duke University Press. Uh, It's an expert on uh, masculine culture, violence, and a lot more. It's a a pleasure to meet you, Tyson. Thank you. Can you give us a little bit of, uh, you know, your background in wrestling? Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to meet you guys. And um, cool to hear a little bit about your backgrounds
3: there, because it's helpful to, to always sort of know where people walk in at in terms of like, wrestling familiarity knowledge it is this niche obscure world for a lot of people that doesn't make any sense and then there's people who it makes yeah. sense of everything because you know without it <laughs> um, yeah so as a kid i was a fan of pro wrestling i did a little bit of wrestling as well not not to the extent that tim did but i certainly Played a lot of sports, went to an all boys school for 10 years. And then on the, every other weekend, cause my parents were divorced. I would get to watch, you know, a lot of wrestling on the, on the weekends at my dad's house. That So that was Saturday. That was back when it was in the morning, Saturday mornings, typically that, that it was on the and Um, knew all those guys was totally into it. And then, um, I started grad school and was interested in these questions about sort of American and Western masculinity and where do we get these set of expectations and understandings from and what what's the connection to violence and I met this guy who was uh, he had been a TA in one of the class I was the TA in the class he was a student and he just was a fascinating guy we started talking and this was during office hours and then he sort of mentioned casually on his way out that he was a manager of like a, a, a wrestling show and did promotions of pro wrestling and I just I forgotten about the entertainment essentially and then i sort of just it fell in my lap and that i pursued this you know i just followed up with him and then surely enough there was this thriving scene out in you know suburbs of new york actually the, the funny part is i never got back in touch with him he ended up sort of Becoming, uh, he disappeared, but he did allow me to sort of get interested and involved. And then I entered the scene as an ethnographer and was, was looking at how these young guys invest so much into this practice while they all have day jobs and they all encounter a lot of sacrifices of their body and, and really of, of their careers and, and their relationships. And they are entirely committed to it. And it's an identity and a passion and a, and a way of living that's so important to them. So I was trying to make sense of that. And it was a sort of traditional ethnography in that I, you know, if you will, kind of was, was, was trying to to make the weird normal, if you will, um, or, you know, so I would go to these shows and then I would go to their practices and then I would hang out with them and, and spend a lot of time with them and uh, get to know them and understand what why it was meaningful and, and what what it you know meant to them and, and what that says about larger cultural threads
0: and patterns and, and issues. You, first, before we get into deconstructing it. Maybe just for those of us, including myself, who, you know, may have lost touch with the sport or people who don't know well, like, what is it? it? Is it is it a sport? Is it showbiz? Is it uh, like, what is it? Yeah. So, I mean,
3: you, you might call it a sporting event. Uh, and, and you're right in that it's really arguably the most popular sporting event in the sense that it runs year round and it happens in both so you have audiences that are live and in-person as well as all the televised productions. So it's 52 weeks a year, and then it's also several nights a week. And so you can imagine all these different arenas in different parts of the country and internationally where it's, where it's being produced. And it is, it is a sporting event, I think is the sort of easiest answer to that, but it is um, entertainment that builds off of you know, mixing. It's a hybrid of, of, of theater and sport and it is, as Pat had mentioned, you know, has, has a lot of, like, really strong ties to both televised entertainment and its, its, its uh, cable networks. It um, also has, has a long, strong and close tie to American politics. And in and, and many ways, you know, hmm. Trump yeah. absolutely epitomizes this. And, and not surprisingly, he has a very... Long connection to the WWE and professional wrestling and has been in shows and has um, really kind of a lot of his style is uh, akin to wrestling uh, spectacle and builds off some of the same themes and traditions. And, and he's very, I would say, sort of masterful at the same type of entertainment and hybridization of, of politics and entertainment. Huh.
1: I think Tyson really hits it right on the head because there is such a, I mean, it, it was a space in which, you know, Roland Bart wrote one of his best essays was about professional wrestling. I mean, there's the, the political aspect of it uh, that Tim, you know, probably has seen as a fan. And definitely you alluded to is that like, there are these sort of space where like a lot of us presidents were big professional wrestling fans. Like Jimmy Carter invited this guy, Mr. Wrestling Two, to the inauguration because he was his and his uh, mother's favorite wrestler. And, Mm-hmm. The wrestler couldn't come in because he wouldn't take his mask off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the space that Tyson studies is the world of independent professional wrestling, uh, which you know a lot of people are familiar with, you know, WWE or WWF previously, or you know, these kind of massive WrestleMania. Uh, type events, you know, these larger than life figures. But uh, Tyson, could you tell us a little bit more about the space of uh, independent professional wrestling, which you studied, and also kind of what the motivations and the kind of orientations to what they're doing that these uh, independent professional wrestlers have?
3: Yeah. So the the scene that I was following and, and doing uh, participant observation research and ethnographic researching was that what's called the indies for you know short for independence and that that they are not televised they are not big dollar big budget operations like the wwe they're premised on the same exact phenomena uh, a genre if you will but they are more or less performed in more obscure and sort of less visible venues that are places like you know vets halls and middle school gyms and and, uh, um, places, community centers. So they are local. The performers really don't make much money at all off of them. Maybe they make $50 or $75 or perhaps 150 on a really good night if they're like a headliner or something. But, you know, they're there for six to eight hours that night. And they've sort of probably taken time off from work and traveled an hour longer to get there, maybe two hours. And so when it you know, all adds up, the the, the, the the money is, is very negligible. And um, so they are initially be sort of interested in in, uh, becoming a pro wrestler that that may be following a dream of of being televised and being in the big time WWE, but I think for the majority, they realize pretty soon after they enter that that is uh, very hard to do, and they uh, start to get meaning and motivation out of it in, in other respects, and they have a certain undoubtedly a certain sort of solidarity with one another but there there is a a community and solidarity that develops there's also a uh less obvious type of intimate connection in that they are uh, a lot of ways you know guys who were raised and and certainly um i would say fit normative masculinity backgrounds and patterns and and sort of value system and then, uh, but they didn't necessarily sort of have opportunities to maybe do theater or have other outlets in their lives. They're, a lot of them are, are, I would say, sort of lower middle class uh, men from suburbs sort of that most of them have finished a high school degree, but not uh, finished college. They, um, the, the sort of intimacy aspect that I was referring to is that this is a way to connect with other people other men in a certain intimate way while not necessarily articulating it in that um with 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 those words but as they might say you know i take care of you you take care of me in the ring And, and yeah. You you know, given all those dangers and risks and and um, um, serious pain and injury that are are possible, that when I leap off that ring post all the way down to the to the floor, that's a significant drop, and you're only going to do that with your arms outstretched and uh, um, <laughs> spread eagle if you know that your partner, who's you know, quote your opponent is going to be there to break your fall so so there's a a trust and intimacy there that that is profound and that that is one of the uh um, motivations that keeps it going and is certainly appealing i I can say more about other motivations
0: well wait can i i want to process this one a little bit so the way you're describing it this is what i'm interpreting that Camaraderie, that esprit de corps that happens when someone's in a singing troupe or someone is in a theater troupe, or, you know, it's just a group of people who love to perform and work together. That is a type of activity that might not readily be available to people who grow up in highly masculine and sort of. Uh, you know, environments, and this is a way to recreate all of you know the the pleasure of performance, the pleasure of putting on something as a group. It's a way for them to enjoy that within the boundaries of this highly masculinist culture that they've been raised in. Am I gathering this correctly?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the, um, absolutely. So, so a lot. Of, we have a lot of like rituals in which the. Men are more able to connect and find deeper connection or intimacy with one another because of the framework of violence or competition that surrounds it. So, you know, you see men sort of hugging or doing intimate acts or or certain um, sort of gestures and rituals that they wouldn't do or wouldn't as easily do if not for the fact that it's, you know, during a football game or during a competitive sporting event or in a situation like the military or violence that, that sort of frames it. So, mm-hmm. yes, they there are a lot of guys that when, when they were in middle school or high school, the last thing their mother or father would have encouraged is, you know, theater, if you will. So, uh, mm. but this is very theatrical and uh, this is a way to put on a mask or you know put on lycra and put on uh various sort of ornamentation and and pageantry and to to do performance
0: just like put on a show put on a show show. yep
2: tim does that resonate with your firsthand experience yeah i mean i think it's there are some different paths that folks take and and um i think tyson points out some of them you know some people are like Our legacy, you know, their families were in wrestling. A lot of the folks, you know, the Rock family was involved in wrestling. You know, uh, Ric Flair's daughter Charlotte Flair. You have a guy Randy Orton. He's a third time legacy. And sometimes there is this tension between. It's quite interesting. You know, I was thinking earlier when we talk about the the VFW halls and this and that. Like you will have a you'll have a feud in WWE. Between someone that was sort of like a legacy hire, if you will, like I mean not that they aren't fit or they haven't put in the work, but they'll do an they'll do an angle or a story where, you know, the guy is talking about you know, he was born to be in this business. Yeah. And then he starts, you know, basically critiquing another wrestler, telling him, you know, he's no good, go back to the bingo hall where he belongs. And there's this tension between coming up through the independence, and then, you know, the sort of legacy folks whose families have been in the business, The McMahon, you know, McMahon himself is, you know, dad was involved in the business. So there's this interesting tension, you know, I do think I mean, I think that there are these sort of, when I describe wrestling, you know, people will often say, I mean, I'm sure it's, uh, you know, it's always the elephant in the room. Like, well, why would you watch that? It's fake, you know, but it's, my response is always that a play is fake. A a movie is fake, you know, that Mm -hmm. we just suspend our disbelief and, and the same thing happens with wrestling. It's entertainment, it's a play and yeah, it's very theatrical and, you know, I mean, it's proved to be very good training grounds. I mean, The Rock, I think, is from what I understand, is the highest paid actor in Hollywood. And where, where did he come from? He came from wrestling. I
1: mean, and Cena's doing pretty well at it too.
2: Yeah, Cena now, and um, you know, you've had some other folks. Hulk Hogan tried to break in, maybe a little bit clunkier, but Roddy Piper. So there, it's a very. I, I agree. It is this very interesting connection between theater and athleticism that you don't really find too many other places. It's very unique in that respect.
3: Yeah, I, I was gonna say um, that uh, the thing you were saying about business is, is, is the show business is absolutely right. And, and so I didn't you know, go into the various sort of on ramps that people have and and the, the ways that people arrive there, but also there are motivations that I think evolve as you're in the, the field and what Tim said in terms of show business, it can be really interesting to see the progression where there's a lot of like etiquette and hierarchical rituals and basically a lot of emphasis and value placed on the, the hierarchy. And one of which is, you know, your, your sort of business acumen. And sometimes people sort of come into it with that kind of background, having some family tied to it. And then in in other cases it's it's developed, but that uh, that can beca- that can become a way in which you know it's it's how well you do show business, and that means how well can you really manipulate the hell out of those fans and those people and have them in the yeah. palm of your hands.
1: And I think one of the things that you brought up, Tyson, about etiquette is one of the things that strikes me, being in the space of uh, you know indie wrestling, is that everybody has to shake everyone's hand. That's part yeah. of the show. Yeah. And that's something uh, yeah. that's like gets to a lot of the things that you talk about where it's like, there is this aspect of camaraderie. There is this aspect of respect that gets engendered that there is a hierarchy yeah. too. you know, it's like, you're not going to get in trouble for not shaking the, um, referee's hand, you know, one of the random yeah. referee's hands. But if you don't shake the top person's hand, you know, that's yeah. a problem. But also oh, the yeah. aspect of trust. I mean, you're – there. it is a very dangerous space to go into where, you yeah. know, somebody can get really hurt and having those rituals of, of uh, respect, at least I see it, shaking everyone's hand is like a sign that, okay, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I, I find to be an utterly fascinating – content, and you kind of get to it – is uh, the aspect of kayfabe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've used this before to teach the front stage back, backstage dynamics of Goffman's dramaturgical approach. And what is, what's kayfabe?
3: Well, you know, it's this funny thing where um, wrestlers don't really want you to talk about kayfabe. And so it's, it's keeping kayfabe is maintaining the, illusion of realness so that breaking kayfabe which you hear more commonly is um if uh you know someone essentially sort of steps out of character or steps out of the scene in a way that disrupts the audience and fan framework of what we're watching so Mm -hmm.
0: like breaking the fantasy
3: yes essentially so so uh it comes from Carney language and uh wrestlers then sort of wove it in many decades ago and there's 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 certainly ties between sort of carnival and, and carney um culture and and pro wrestling sort of roving shows and various uh entertainment that you know goes back a couple hundred years uh so but yeah so kayfabe is 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 an important concept and um when I first entered the scene, it was always a little bit, I was, you know, like, they weren't sure how to interact with me because it was <laughs> like, you know, what do you do with this guy who, is he a fan? Is he one of us? Is he, you know, where does he fit into this whole performance? Am I
2: sort of, you can't really be in between.
1: Yeah. You're either smart or you're not, I guess, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. And publicly, it wasn't acknowledged, Pat, you might know this better or or Tyson, but my understanding is that, you know, the public for really until there was a court case in the early 90s involving Vince McMahon and steroids, it was never publicly acknowledged that wrestling was choreographed until he was on trial and that, you know, I've heard... I don't know the the veracity of this but that like newspapers in like milwaukee and detroit used to cover wrestling matches in like the mm-hmm. 20s and 30s as if they like they were legitimate contests with not without a predetermined outcome and so there were always these kind of questions and it's always been a very very secretive um business you know that they even have their own sort of language this kayfabe that tyson mentioned um yeah And the things they whisper to each other in the ring, you know, it's very, it's amazing how committed, you know, wrestlers are to this, to the, to the backstage, you know, to the maintaining that sort of front stage. It's interesting now with Twitter and, and, and all that a whole different story, because now, you know, everything is the front stage. It feels like, but yeah, yeah, it's the kayfabe and, and the commitment is amazing.
3: Yeah. I believe they they got a – had might have had something to do with when they switched from the World Wrestling Federation to World Wrestling Entertainment in the 90s, and there was a certain lawsuit there, and I believe the switch – was like something they didn't want, but then ended up being a benefit because they kind of went to a sort of being governed by, by more entertainment regulations, yeah. less sporting yeah. regulations, which allowed uh, different different types of policies and, and uh, less uh, sort of stringent regulations.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, as Tyson said, it had to do a lot with like the state athletic commissions, you know, who who governs the events. You know, if it's passed off as sport, there's certain rules that kind of have to be applied in you know, what sort of, uh, you know, do you, how many doctors are you supposed to have, to, are you supposed mm-hmm. to have an ambulance there? You know, what kind of taxes do you have to pay? Uh, right. you know, can you have blood? Can you have any sorts of other things? But yeah, I think yeah. one of the things, but yeah, as uh, to Tim's point, I mean, there was always like exposés that people would, um, kind of release in the news and things like that, that talked about, oh, wrestling isn't, you know, this, le- you know, quote unquote, legitimate, a battle between two athletes but there was that sort of thing that was got if you read like old books there was always things to maintain that element of of um you know the backstage you know kind of taking the backstage and uh, uh, obscuring it where you know basically you know the russian characters who were not russian yeah. Yeah. Uh, would have to act like they were from the soviet union all the time and keep their uh keep their <laughs> accents and actually change their, their legal names from, you know, Scott Simpson to Nikita, Nikita Koloff. Or, you know, there was things where they would, you know, start bar fights or be try and get into bar fights and win bar fights in order to show how and get arrested in order to show that they were really tough. And it plays into that sort of masculine macho sort of thing where it's like the violence that you see is real. And that the, the person that is, in the ring kicking butt even with the carnivals it's like the whole idea was that oh does anybody think that they can come in here and beat this wrestler i'll give you 500 dollars if you can and always you know the wrestler had the ability to to beat those people i mean it was like whoever was it was built on that idea that the person in the ring was like this really strong legitimate you know Mm -hmm. you know the character that you see is you know the real character uh outside even though it's not real you know and people do suspend their disbelief
0: some of them were impressive fighters. I remember the wrestler Brock Lesnar. Oh yeah, you know, b- being quite successful in in, in real uh, combat sports. Yes, a lot of them do. They, you know, a lot of the folks, you know,
2: the both individuals that I grew up with were both excellent wrestlers. Um, one wrestled for Kent State University. He had the winningest mm-hmm. record at Kent State. Uh, Brock Lesnar was. Uh, Uh, national champ. Um, They get a lot of wrestlers that come out. They get some football players as well. Um, Lesnar was in the MMA. They're increasingly pulling folks like uh, Ronda Rousey. So you get folks that are definitely have skills. And, um, Mm -hmm. and even though it is, you know, predetermined choreographed, sometimes the audience does get upset. Like if you have somebody if you actually couldn't conceive of that happening in real life, a Mm person, a particular individual actually beating like a large, strong, you know, Brock Lesnar, people are sort of, you know, they don't, they don't like that. They want it to be sort of as realistic as possible. Right. You know, there are sort of boundaries. It's not, you know, anything goes. And I mean, certainly there are, you have, you know, people from other dimensions, but then there still are these boundaries that um, people kind of adhere to, uh, it it seems to me.
0: I have a follow-up question because my impression of wrestling fans is a lot of them are very meta in the sense that they have an understanding that being a good wrestler involves, I don't know, some type of charisma or mass persuasion ability or like what's the real game? Like, what's the real skill that makes a great wrestler great? Like, what is it? I mean, you got to have, there's some basics, I think, a basic level of strength, a basic
2: level of athleticism, but they do talk about like that it factor sort of in wrestling that um, is the charisma at the end of the day. And, you know, there are, Sometime in WWE, at least you get the sense that management is pushing someone on the crowd and sometimes the crowd rejects that person. And even though they're portrayed as like this hero, the crowd actually turns on them and boos them and sometimes like the business has to respond and turn that person into a kind of a bad guy or they have to respond to the audience who the audience actually likes and actually finds charismatic so there's this weird tension between the audience and the promoters and i i I, a lot of it i think is the charisma you know who who's going to be the face of the business the face Uh of the industry and yeah i think it it comes down to charisma and and it's kind of hard to put a finger on what, what creates that? Yeah. The charisma
3: and, and the, you know, what they call the psychology, which, which sort of go together, but the psychology is how well you interact with, with the fans and how you develop that um, chemistry with the fans. The, the charisma is key. The psychology is key. The athleticism and skills is key and, and the look matters. Um, So, so it is, you know, semiotics. It does matter, what you look like, and um, that can be adjusted, that can be sort of built up or, or you know, uh, morphed or developed further, and, you you know, you do get certain points if you're just massive and big right off the start, right? You get a certain sort of advantage in that regard, but a lot of those guys are not necessarily that big. Mm-hmm. They do a great job of making them look big and uh the you know there's all sorts of techniques to do that uh especially with with television but they you know they they the look matters but not as much i think as as the sort of charisma the psychology and and the ability to to sort of really get that crowd and the interaction right where you want them because it's i think you know uh uh, tim made a good point there in terms of like the WWE management or the, the sort of producers and promoters, they don't exactly know how the crowd's going to respond. But they they might uh, sort of put stock in a certain character and then that person sort of falls flat or vice versa. And they've got to adjust and, and they are kind of reading and getting a sense of how the crowd responds to the, the person. So that that is kind of you know, unlike sport, but also like sports in a, in a big sort of corporate way. And that, you know, if you're going to sell more jerseys or, or bring more people, TV viewers in, then, then that uh, influences the league.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Ty, that point that Tyson just made is really key. I mean, if you really look at something like mixed martial arts, which is on the, on the level, the, the, the fighters that draw the most. Buys and the most viewership and the most attention are, you know, your Conor McGregor's, for example, Conor McGregor is not the best MMA fighter, you know, in the UFC, maybe not even in the top 10 pound for pound, but he, you know, that that aspect really draws what the attention is paid to by the management. But I think one of the things that's kind of, it, it's tough to figure out where that connection lies because you can have somebody who's, you know, an Andre the giant who draws a lot of attention cause he's large or somebody that's really acrobatic, yeah. you know, Being who sure, yeah. has the ability. Yeah. Yeah. Acrobatic like a Ray Mysterio or, you know, someone else or somebody that's a great technician or my favorite or, you know, it can be completely unpredictable. Right. I remember when I was um, there's one wrestler named the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant and the Boogie Woogie Man would go to the ring and he would dance on his way to the ring. He had a big old beard. He would dance on the way to the ring. He would dance in the ring. His offense was just punching and poking people in the eye while he was dancing. He would drop an elbow, get the three, start dancing again. And the fans loved him. Oh, yeah. Like He was a massive are in the south so it's one of those things <laughs> where the key to it is is like and that's what Tyson was talking about and that's what Tim was talking about is like a connection with the the audience that the audience either believes in you as as a hero or believes in you as somebody to cheer for or believes in you as someone to boo and want to see lose you know that's kind of something yeah. that's that's central to it and it's something that's pretty unpredictable in a way it's part of that psychology that, that yeah, uh, they don't
3: they don't they don't have to like you they, they just have to care yeah. And at one what way or mean. the other, they have to, you know, yep. have an emotional investment that that either generates, you know, sort of uh, animosity or, you know, sort of uh, appreciation or, or fear or or uh, dislike. But, um, you know, emotion and telling a good story is what's key. You got
0: to be able to tell a good story. You know, that's it's very interesting. It's sort of another illustration of a basic principle in. Uh, the fields of marketing and consumption right Absolutely. like advertisers corporate types they cannot impose a desire on their own, on a crowd. Like there's a sort of a symbiotic relationship and and people can reject products that are pushed in front of them. And I guess it's just people are way more cognizant of that in wrestling than they might be uh, with other consumer products. Uh, We're we're getting uh, towards the end of the segment. I wanted to follow up on something really interesting that you said earlier, Tyson, about Donald Trump. You wrote about this also in the conversation a few years back about how Donald Trump borrowed from his experience in wrestling and and used the skills uh, in politics. Can you sort of flesh that out for us a bit? Tell us what you mean. Yeah. I mean, he's not the first person to really uh,
3: understand and skillfully fuse the same sets of drawing heat and telling a good story and stagecraft as a politician, I mean, we even had, you know, governor of Minnesota, who was a wrestler who went on to be the governor of, uh, of a state, right? He, he was a wrestler before he was a governor. Mm-hmm. Um, and Trump recognizes that if he, his base and and his rallies look a lot like a wrestling show, and he is very good at uh, essentially sort of manipulating a certain story, telling a certain story, and and sort of bringing the audience right up to a sort of moment of tension, and backing off, and then going for it, and using a lot of the same base emotions of of jealousy and contempt and betrayal and of yeah. uh, anger and um, and really you know hatred. Of course, um, he he has several. Examples in which, you know, he'll kind of, like, get the crowd to say something that he says, you know, he sort of says he can't himself, right? So he'll kind of go after an opponent, a political opponent, or, or just anyone, pretty much, and, you know, he'll be trying to... Um, like to lock her up or something. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, lock her up. And, and um, or, or, you know, he'll basically sort of say, like, well, you know, that guy... You know, he's he's pretty much a, you know, he's a, well, I can't say it. You know, it'll kind of keep gesturing. it And then someone from the crowd will say pussy. And then they'll kind of be like, you know, point to the person in the crowd. And the whole crowd goes nuts. And then he's like, I didn't say it. You know, <laughs> um, you know I mean, he's very good at this uh, stagecraft and um, getting people to believe in him. And, and of course, you know, not having a lot of necessarily any substance or, or real, uh, you know, <laughs> truth or content to back it up. But that's not, you know, he knows that that isn't always so important.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's not coincidental that, I mean, one of the key tropes in professional wrestling is nationalism. (laughs) I mean, if you look at, you know, going back to probably when you last time you watched it, Joe, I mean, Hulk Hogan carried the American flag to fight Iron Sheik, the Iranian, or to fight Nikolai Volkov, the Soviet. Uh, You know, I mean, even one of the most interesting sort of uh, wrestling things is like. In Japan, in Japanese history class, when you're in middle school, you learn about professional wrestling in the 1950s because there were matches after uh, World War II where they had this one wrestler named Ricky Dozan who would um, wrestle Americans. You know, he would wrestle the Sharp brothers who were actually Canadian. He would wrestle Luthez. And they would have like 90% of the television sets in the entire country of Japan were watching these matches because these were these kind of, arenas in which you could have the Japanese hero after World War II kind of reclaim Japanese pride, like, even though no,
0: he, white guys,
1: even though yeah. he was really Korean right.
0: you know, yeah, yeah. and Whatever. he's also,
1: so, and thus he's a, he's actually a North Korean national hero for that reason, I guess. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of a space in which, you know, that's the next kind of level where it's like, you know, there is these sort of, as Tyson was talking about these, these promo tricks and the way in which work in the crowd, but also there is this sort of us versus them dynamic that's kind of key within wrestling that, you know Yeah.
3: Absolutely. And and, and just the you know, the 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 importance of like vengeance society in america is is so pronounced in wrestling and we you know these like it, it's the nationalism that is is uh, been drawn upon but of course you know the sort of xenophobia the homophobia the sexism the racism all these things in which we create an us them you know dichotomy and the sort of other person and you know you can imagine the like WWE right now is it's just probably just coming up some character there's like a Chinese wrestler with a mask on right
0: now
2: <laughs> the virus in defense of you know WWE and it, they have you actually do see some changes going on mm-hmm. For instance, you know, women's matches used to just be like they would have like things like bra and panties matches like they would never do that anymore. And then it was the Divas division and they they gave women more sort of airtime and but but not all that much. And then now, you know, you just had, I believe it was the last WrestleMania you had, and they switched the name of the division to the women's division. And you had women that actually headlined WrestleMania. I mean, a few years ago, that would have been absolutely unthinkable. So Becky Lynch and Ronda Rousey headlined WrestleMania, you know, before a few years back when women would wrestle, you would have people in the audience that would chant things like you can't wrestle and we want wrestling.
1: Or for them to show a particular body part.
2: Yeah. for it, Precisely. Yeah, exactly. You know, so you find some incremental changes. So for instance, there's a guy in the WWE right now They actually did a story on him. I can't remember where NBC or something like this, but his, his name is Mustafa Ali. He's a Muslim wrestler. And he's like the first Muslim wrestler that, you know, hasn't been depicted in this, you know, the Iraqi, you right. know, trying to defeat the U S and something like this. I mean, right. still you find some tropes that are not, you know not as pc i think as many folks would like but you do see a change that's taking place in wrestling um like you had a champion who converted the belt he he said he wanted an environmentally environmentally sustainable belt so he turned it into a hemp belt and he would you know talk about i mean he was sort of a bad guy that would yell at the audience about their consumerist behavior But then he was like getting into a Twitter exchange with Naomi Klein about like the Green New Deal. And he is like an environmentally conscious guy. You know, after Jon Stewart left The Daily Show, the first appearance he made was at a WWE event, you know, hosting it. So you find I think sometimes there is that nationalism, you know, and there's there's links between the McMahon family and the the, um, The Republican and the Trump family. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that. There's a strong contingent of wrestling fans that don't like that, don't like the sexism, don't like the nationalism, don't like the racist, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, gimmicks and people in the back have pushed back on it. And I think fans are becoming more vocal about it as well. And so much for the better, because you have, you know, um, you have a different situation now, I I think. um, Yeah. Yeah. I think
3: that's a good point. Yeah, it is. It is not as static as some might. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it has had a strong tie or a stronger tie to certainly Republican politics. And uh, I think in general, um, the, you know, while there may be some some changes, they they are um, they're not they're, they're not leading their, their following on those cultural shifts.
2: Yeah. I'll add one more thing. Maybe we can put this in the show notes, but there, there's a wrestler who they would describe as being um, Oh, he's very cerebral. He did double uh, degrees in sociology and psychology. <laughs> and uh, his name's Baron... Baron Corbin. So I started interacting with the announcer. He would respond on Twitter. Okay. And he would always bring up sociology. And so I said, oh, hey, I'm a sociologist. You know, you should start dropping some sociological language. And yeah. like saying that he's, you know, defying social norms and this, that. And I, I gave him some information. So I put this up on YouTube like a few years ago whenever I did it. But he, so I gave him some language and he says, uh, you know, Baron Corbin, or I think it's Baron Corbin, but he describes someone as a... Uh, Defying social norms, and he he is an anime. He says, "I gave him the word anime."
1: (laughs) Is this Moro
0: Rinaldo?
2: Yeah, Moro Rinaldo. Yeah. So uses the word anime, but just not in a correct way. He calls wrestler (laughs) an anime and uh, true disorder. So I tried to get some you know sociology in there.
0: That's pretty cool. I got I got to get in on this. That's very cool. You've been listening to the Annex, Sociology Podcast. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash Annex, on Twitter at SociAnnex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Leseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of today's panel, Tyson Smith of Penn, Tim Gill of UNC Wilmington, and Pat Riley of UC Irvine. I'm Joe Cohen. Thank you for listening.